Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 239, 239, 239, the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. Thank you for joining me. So uh, what I want to do uh, today, normally I have the homartiology section and the, the topic of the day and, and then a book review, and I'm, I'm doing that again today. But my topic that I'm going to start with and my book review at the end are going to have a significant bit of overlap. So just be forewarned. There's going to be uh, – we are not going to change subjects entirely when we get to that. So I want to talk about the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, that was concluded, contracted near the end of World War II uh, in New Hampshire, Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. And uh, and the sort of the global order that followed uh, in the post-war uh, era, which I think is now coming to a close. Right. So there was a 70-year 70, 70 run there, which is pretty good. So what was this Bretton Woods Agreement? That was where the International Monetary Fund uh, was established. Uh, but the significant thing uh, that came out of that was globalization. And I'm, um, and this is anticipating my book review, I'm, I'm uh, persuaded by the thesis, the central thesis of a gent named Peter Zahan. I'm going to be talking about one of his books shortly. So that's where the overlap comes in. So um, uh, weigh all these things accordingly. But the, his central insight, which I'm riffing off of and which I find, uh, which I find compelling, is this. At the end of, uh, well, most people think that globalization is simply something that happened because the world got smaller, because there are that many more of us, uh, because the population grew, because technology advanced, and everybody thought of globalization as being sort of an inevitable uh, result of human progress. And I think this is a mistake. I think globalization was the result of the foreign policy of the United States following World War II. And that foreign policy is shifting and everything is going to shift with it. And I think that we need to be prepared for a very different world 20 years out from what we're dealing with right now. So, what happened at what happened at Bretton Woods in this regard is um, uh, what happened was this: uh, in the aftermath of World War II, the United States had not fought the war on our own territory, uh, if you will. Um, the other industrialized nations, particularly in Europe, were laid flat. Uh, they were they they expended themselves in the war, so. Uh, the war had been conducted, the Battle of Britain uh, over London. The uh, uh, Germany was uh, wiped out, uh, flattened, dest economy destroyed by the war. Um, everything was, <laughs> you know, war destroys, and a lot of things were destroyed. Uh, except the United States, we um, 
came into the war relatively late. We f- um, we fought the war, um, particularly in the Pacific. The, in the Pacific uh, theater, it was um, America uh, carrying the brunt of the fighting, and a lot of the fighting uh, from D-Day uh, on. Uh, but that was relatively late, uh, 41 to, to 45. And the, the end result was the United States came out of the war um, uh, in a singularly strong position. And, uh, and with particular respect to our Navy, our Navy was um, just the undisputed um, sovereign of the of the seas. And what happened at Bretton Woods was the the United States said something um sort of delivered um its uh, notice of the way things were going to be uh in a way that that astonished everybody. Um what do I mean? Well, the United States was in a position to have functioned at that point as an old-fashioned empire. Uh, collecting duties and tariffs everywhere and just basically charging everybody for um, uh, the privilege of, uh, you know, um, operating in America's world. Uh, But what happened was uh, the United States guaranteed shipping. We used our Navy as a guarantor of shipping from anywhere to anywhere in the world. And what this did was it made globalization possible. Um, it made super tankers possible. It made China's modern economy possible. Uh, because all of a sudden, um, we're accustomed to the phrase, should America be the world's policeman? Um, you know, should we go into a, a, a nation and... Uh, disrupt its in internal affairs and s- sort them out, which we have periodically done. But the thing that we did globally all over the place was we we became the world's Coast Guard. And when we became the world's Coast Guard, that made globalization uh, possible because we guaranteed shipping. Shipping, uh, shipping goods by water is a fraction of the cost uh, uh, compared to rail or uh, trucking, just it's a it's a fraction, like a fiftieth, um, and uh, this released a, a you know a lot of energy, and a lot of people th- have come to believe that this globalization, you know, you can get it, buy a ticket, and fly anywhere, right? You can you can go be a tourist virtually anywhere, you can visit virtually anywhere. Um, we have come to think that this is just the way things are and 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 they're not so what 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 happens when america gets tired of this 70 year arrangement which political forces on the right and on the left in domestic politics in america are getting tired of it so uh, that's the, uh, that's the whole america first impetus and suppose we retreat back to our uh, shores, basically not isolationist, but semi-isolationist. Suppose we become semi-isolationist. What then? What's going to be the result? Well, um, more on that. When I when I review um, 
uh, one of Zahan's uh, books uh, in just a few minutes. If you stick with me in just a few minutes, we'll get into that. Continuing on with episode 239, we... uh, are continuing our study of sins in the New Testament, a subject that we are calling hamartiology. And we come to a verb that sometimes means to murmur against, to murmur against. It is embrimaomai, embrimaomai, which is murmur against, murmur against. Now, the one place where it means this is the occasion where the disciples are upset at the expensive ointment that a particular woman wasted on Jesus, but which Jesus said was a preparation for his burial. Okay, so that's in Mark 14, 5. For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. So that's our word there. They murmured against her. Why? Because she had put expensive ointment on Jesus. The disciples murmured against her, and we learn elsewhere that the ringleader in this murmuring is uh, Judas Iscariot. Uh, he, he was the treasurer, kept the money box, and so consequently, uh, he was upset that the money wasn't given to the poor. That is, that the money wasn't given to Judas to keep for the poor. That is, for Judas. Now, the same verb, this is interesting, and this, when I was preparing this, this really struck me. The same verb is used elsewhere, but without the, the negative sinful connotation. So when the disciples are murmuring against this woman, it's a sinful thing they're doing. But the verb is applied to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is described as responding this way at the grave of Lazarus. Two times it says that he groaned in his spirit or in himself. That'd be John eleven thirty three and John eleven thirty eight. It says he groaned in his spirit, and it says he groaned in himself. It's the same verb there, and it seems very likely that the same woman was involved. In Mark, we are told that the incident happened in Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Martha and Mary lived, and Jesus groaned just prior to his great miracle there. So this groaning, the groaning of the disciples against the woman with the ointment, and the groaning of Jesus uh, just prior to raising Lazarus, uh, all of those, the, the murmuring and the groaning, all happened in Bethany. Jesus groaned just prior to his great miracle there. So the disciples murmured against Mary in Bethany and would have condemned her, and Jesus groaned in Bethany just prior to raising Mary's brother. Um, I, th- I think this is, the, there's something there that needs to be teased out or develop, develop more. There are several other uses. Another translation is that of straightly charge, which Jesus did with the two blind men at Jericho in Matthew 9, 20. He, he strictly instructed them not to tell anybody. And then in Mark uh, 1, when Jesus healed the leper and strictly instructed him not to tell anyone, the, the same word is used. So Jesus groaning in the spirit before the, re- the resuscitation of Lazarus, the disciples murmuring against Mary, and the uh, Jesus strictly instructing people he he had healed to not uh, spread the word. So we come now to our book review section. I need I need to uh, uh, describe a little bit how this uh, um, came about. I'm currently on a Peter Zahan jag. Um, 
And it happened on this wise. I, I'm pretty sure a, a number of episodes ago, a year or two ago, I read uh, a book by Zahan that I really enjoyed called The, Abs- the Accidental Superpower. The Accidental Superpower. Really good book uh, about the United States and the favored position that the United States was in geographically. Um, uh, why, why is America wealthy? Um, and uh, Zahan is not exactly a geographical d- determinist, but he comes close, uh, close enough. And, I, and, uh, and here's, my qualif- here's a qualifier at the front end. I think that he is too neglectful of the worldview issues involved. Um, he looks at rivers and he looks at rivers and coasts and mountain ranges and all, all sorts of factors, but he doesn't really get into the worldview of the people uh, involved. Um, which I think I think you ought to wait that more. But never, nevertheless, there th- that book, the accidental superpower, was a very uh, fascinating book. And here's an example of his geographical observation: um, the United States. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, in the first segment of of this podcast that that uh, shipment of things like crops by water is a tiny fraction of the cost of. Um, shipping it by uh, rail or by by truck or whatever. And the United States has 17,000 miles of navigable rivers, 17,000 miles of navigable rivers. The rest of the world combined has 15,000 miles of navigable rivers. And our rivers, the, the, the great rivers, the Ohio, the Mississippi, the Missouri, are spang on top of one of the most fertile, uh, you know, Great Plains uh, area in the world. And, you know, it's just, okay. And then we've got an ocean on the on the right side and an ocean on our left side, so no real uh, threat of invasion there. We've got Canadians to the north uh, who are very nice and, and not about to invade. Uh, uh, we, we are in this very favored um, Position so that's that's the accidental superpower. Now um, he's written some other books. I so I read that I had a lot of fun with it. Set it aside, and then I saw a um, a YouTube clip or two by Peter Zahan. Not Pete, not putting it together with this book that I read. I think he was talking about the Ukraine war, the Russian Ukraine war. I'd watched one or two of those. Then I had a friend recommend his newsletter. Uh, and I, when I was uh, doing this, I put everything together. Oh, he's written some other books. He wrote The Absent Superpower, which is about the shale revolution in America, which I'm partway through. And he wrote a book called Disunited Nations, which is sort of his review of what's going on all over the world, uh, Disunited Nations. And then he's got another book, a fourth book, coming out in a few weeks, and that book um, is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And I'm assuming that that book is going to be sort of his summary capstone work describing his um, uh, macro view of these things. And by the end of the world, I assume he's talking about the end of globalization. The, uh, so what, what would a fragmented world order look like? Disunited Nations is a uh, sort of a region-by-region review of what he thinks is going to happen. 
So uh, he thinks that the United States, uh, after World War II, provided the, uh, the naval forces necessary for globalization to take shape. If the United States withdraws into a semi-isolationist position, it will do so. Um, it won't be uh, detrimental to us because we can grow all our own food. We can manufacture our own goods. We can um, uh, we we now ha- uh, have access to um, unlimited energy in North America. We don't need Saudi Arabia for en- energy anymore, and, and so on. So the United States is in a position where we can um, uh, retrench. We can come retreat back into a semi-isolationist position. And Zahan, in this book, Disunited Nations, asks questions like, what's going to happen to the rest of the world? And his thesis is that there will that a number of nations will become, uh, he argues that certain nations are toast, they're done, uh, they're in a demographic death spiral, and there's no way that they can escape. Other nations are, are geographically, demographically well-positioned to become regional hegemons. So the United States has been a global hegemon, and he believes that as we retract, um, certain countries are going to come to the fore as regional hegemons. Now, he makes a lot of predictions, lots and lots of predictions, and I'm not vouching or backing or agreeing with all his predictions, but I think his macro view is uh, correct. Um, Now, he argues that basically China is done for. He argues that Russia is done for. He argues that Germany is done for. So, uh, to take Russia as one example, he says they're in a demographic death spiral. They're not, they're not able to replace their population. Things are falling apart. The reason that they invaded Ukraine uh, the way they did, because if they, if they didn't do it now, they're never going to be able to do it. Um, so he, he believes that within a very short order, within 10 years, let's say, uh, Russia will be no more. And, um, and he thinks something very similar to China. He believes that, I, I mentioned the regional hegemons. He thinks that the strongest European power uh, is going to be France. He thinks that France is going to come through in a strong position. He believes that the UK is going to be sort of roped in with the Anglosphere, the United States, it will sort of the an honorary 51st state across the water, you know. Uh, with the United States. Uh, he believes that the Mediterranean hegemon will be Turkey. Turkey, he thinks, is well positioned to be the regional hegemon there. Uh, India um, as the Asian hegemon. The South American hegemon will be Argentina. Um, and and so when he, uh, Zahan knows his, uh, knows his rivers, knows his geography, knows how the the thing. So uh, when uh, he looks at Argentina, he looks at all the rivers. He looks at the river system that flows into Buenos Aires. Um, when he looks at Brazil, he looks at the giant cliff, the the escarpment that makes entry and uh, entry and e- egress from Brazil a difficult thing to do. So. Uh, he, he is the he is the sort of writer that is very um, 
very engaging, good writer. Uh, he's he, he makes three prediction for three predictions a minute, and he can afford to be wrong on two of them, uh, and and yet still be really worthwhile, uh, really worth reading. If you'd like more of this kind of content, be sure to check out Canon Plus. That's where you can find all of my audiobooks and a huge collection of resources to help you engage with culture and live faithfully. By subscribing to Canon Plus, you're supporting the making of this show and more. If you haven't joined up yet, you can get your first month for just 99 cents by using the promo code DUG99.